Nelson Mandela's words, the dawn of our freedom. Our message is that the basic needs of the masses of the people must be addressed. Snaking queues from cities and sprawling townships to far-flung villages, an air of excitement and expectancy. 30 years ago, South Africa, the most rigidly implemented segregationist regime in modern history, became a democracy with high hopes and heady expectations. But these days, it's more likely to be in the news for infrastructural decay, crime, and corruption. You know, the vast majority of South Africans say they're really disappointed with what they've got. South Africa's strength is its democracy. Um, but has that translated in improved quality of life for the vast majority? And the answer has got to be no. This is Global Insights by Network 2020. And today we're looking back at a discussion we had last year with South African writer and founding director of Clarity Global, Palesa Marudu, an MIT professor of political science and contemporary Africa, Dr. Evan Lieberman. What has really happened since South Africa's democratic transition? Is it fair to say that the post-apartheid country has let down its people's hopes? Or is the question itself the wrong one to ask? What's the right question? Moderating the discussion was Courtney Doggart, president of Network 2020. This episode was made in partnership with the Institute of Current World Affairs. Kicking off, um, I want to start with you, Evan, actually. We're three decades on after the end of apartheid. Um, there was, I think, a lot of belief that the introduction of democracy would transform lives across the spectrum for better through the equality of opportunities. Um, and I think that there's a lot of criticism that this hasn't necessarily happened. So can you give us a background just so we're all on the same page of what has happened in South Africa since the end of apartheid and uh, what the political landscape is that remains in its wake? So just please kindly set the stage for us. Sure, great. And thanks for uh, having me uh, this afternoon. It's great to be with these other two uh, fantastic panelists. Um, and, and obviously you're asking a really big question. I'm going to try and be relatively brief. Um, but, you know, Black South Africans, of course, were extraordinarily optimistic that democracy was going to change their lives for the better. And, and looking back today, um, you know, the vast majority of South Africans say they're really disappointed with what they've gotten. Um, and in my book, I, I document this frustration. It's absolutely palpable. And it's really understandable given the extent of poverty and inequality that you can see in the country. Millions of people still live in really hard circumstances. And they do so in a place where millions of people live spectacularly well. Right. So that juxtaposition is just you get off an airplane in Cape Town or Johannesburg and you see it and it's still painful. And at the moment, you know, the whole country is suffering from rolling blackouts due to some mismanagement of the electrical grid, which resonates with other other failures of governance. Um, but at least, you know, for me, and this is where, you know, we may have some some disagreement today, um, well, some agreement, disagreement, maybe I, I think it's a mistake to say that, that South African democracy has been a big failure. Um, you know, that's the question of our panel. Um, you know, and, and I don't think it's a rhetorical question at all. When I consider what's happened over the past three decades, compared to literally what happened for 300 years that came before that, and what's happening in countries around the world, including here in the US. Um, and, you know, and some people will talk, you know, you go to South Africa, and you'll talk to people and say, nothing's happened since 1994. 
But a lot's happened. There's a lot to celebrate. So many of the gaps between black and white people have closed. The government's built about 3 million small homes and gave those to poor families. Millions of people have gained access to pipe water, to sewerage, to electrical connections that they didn't have before. There's a large black middle class. Citizens can participate in all sorts of ways, black citizens equal with white citizens. And in so many ways, I think South Africa has gone further than the U.S., even though, you know, in, in terms of dealing with a, a segregation legacy um, and, and the U.S. You know, Civil Rights Act is, is several decades older than uh, 1994, you know, from the 1960s. So, you know, the greed and corruption we've seen at all levels of government and within society in South Africa is, you know, really disappointing and it's frustrating. But I also don't think it's entirely surprising um, because when we look at the role corruption's played in so many countries undergoing you know, major political transitions. Again, according, you know, the same thing happened in the United States. We had, obviously we still have corruption, um, but we had major bouts of corruption during, you know, moments of political transformation. So, you know, this post-apartheid project is less than three decades old. And given the enormity of the problems that the country faced, I don't think we should be surprised that a lot is left to be done. So last thing you asked, you know, the political landscape. And, and it's one in which the, the ANC, right, the African National Congress, which was the, the party, the, the liberation party that came to power with the first multiracial election. And, you know, people thought this was going to be, you know, the, you know, the one party, you know, might be the one party state that's in power forever. Um, but in, in recent years and recent elections, it's been increasingly challenged. In, in my own book, I decided to focus on the 2019 national election because it was clear it was going to be really competitive. Um, the ANC still got a majority, but it had its worst showing ever. And in the recent local elections, the ANC lost power in a lot of cities. Um, and so other, other groups of parties have formed coalitions that, and they're in power. Um, but there's a lot of challenges outside the ANC and inside the ANC. And, and the current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, is you know, basically you know, hanging on for his political life. And the big question is going to be whether it, it can hold on, you know, kind of co-opt a lot of the, the, the folks in the party. Um, who, who are challenging him, and we'll see what happens in the next election in, in 2024. Right. Thank you. Uh, that was a wonderfully concise answer to a big question. Um, turning to you, Palesa, how how can how can we understand democracy in South Africa today? And crucially, what are some of the consequences of apartheid on the practice of democracy? Yeah. Yeah. Th thank you so much, Courtney. Um, and Ivan did paint kind of. A broad picture of what's going on. Um, but to answer this question, I think it is important to um, look at the recent history of, of South Africa and answer that fundamental question of what was the nature of, of the national conflict in South Africa? What was the fight really about? And I think the ANC has always provided a coherent answer to this fundamental question in that the main fight in South Africa was restoring rights to citizenship to the vast majority of, of people who are Black. Uh, and by that, I mean the expanded definition of Black, which is um, you know African people like myself and, and colored people, people of mixed race and, and Indian people. And these are the groupings that were denied rights to full citizenship uh, on the basis of skin color. So by rights to citizenship, what are we talking about? We're talking about the right to live wherever you want, the right to, to move freely, the right to establish a business, the right to farm, to work the land, the right to seek employment wherever you want, the right to join a trade union, the right to marry whoever you want. Um, and, and these are basic rights to citizenship that were afforded to a small section of South African society that was white. 
and denied to a vast majority of South Africans who were Black. Now, logic therefore tells you that it is impossible to establish a United Nation with a common identity when a few enjoy rights to citizenship and others don't. Um, so that was a major contradiction with the apartheid system. Um, so the, the struggle against apartheid was first and foremost about correcting that historic injustice and restoring the rights to citizenship to everyone. So after a very long and bitter struggle, the apartheid was defeated and then we all voted in 1994. And then the process of building that one United Nation with all its contradictions began. And, and, and this brings me to the second part of your question, uh, what are the consequences of apartheid on the practice of democracy? And, and there are many, um, and first and foremost, only a few enjoy the benefits of a racist democracy. So white people lived very well and even, um, um, you know, said a little bit about, about that and the, and the reality of today. Um, they enjoyed the, all the privileges that came with being beneficiaries of an oppressive system. Now we are living in a new dispensation where everyone expects to become a beneficiary of a new democratic order. Um, and, and after 1994, it soon becomes quite difficult and, and very quickly. And I think it's important to look at post-apartheid South Africa and the experiment with democratic rule in phases of its post-apartheid administration. So the presidency of Nelson Mandela is often characterized in what I sometimes think it's in simplistic terms, um, you know, the whole rainbow nation phase. I think it was a bit much more deeper than that. This is a phase where a new government informed by long-term vision to build a non-racial democratic state for South Africa has had to start putting this vision into some form of reality. So the first thing that Mandela administration does is to build this sense of a one South African nation. And I think you cannot underestimate how important that was given the divisions of the past, that you cannot have a nation where you don't have a single national identity. So what happens is that there's a new flag, a, nation, you know, a new national anthem, the recognition of 11 official languages, one central government, et cetera. And of course, in 1996, we adopt a new constitution in, in, um, in which declares in the preamble that we believe that South Africa belongs to all who live in it, uh, united in our diversity. But this is this country that wants to unite in its diversity has to confront its brutal past. And then you have the TRC process to account for the horrors of the past. A process, if evaluated with benefit of time and history, you realize that there has been much unfinished business. But at the time it was happening, it was quite a powerful process, especially because it centered the victims of apartheid and they were able to tell their stories. Women were able to tell stories about their own experiences, about their own experiences of their own children. Even individuals were able to come forward and talk about what happened. So people believed in that process and were afforded an opportunity to talk about what really happened to them. But it also opened a chapter to white South Africa about the horrors of what was done to fellow citizens on their behalf. The killings, the general violence of influx control, past laws, group areas, and all of that was laid bare at the TRC. And this then became the basis for what then needs to happen moving forward to address the violence of apartheid and its legacy of racist exclusion. And that brings us to the second administration of Tabombeki, uh, which focused primarily on creating a black middle class that Ivan also, refer Ivan also referred to. 
through policies like affirmative action and, and the Black Empowerment, um, uh, what we refer to as BEE. What was BEE was a deal struck between white capital or business to say that you will allocate a portion of your ownership to some Black people. Um, there will be some preferential procurement to Black-owned businesses and particularly Black women businesses, etc. And, and of course, we had affirmative action which meant preferential hiring for, for Black people. So for a decade between 1997, let's say 1997, 2007, you saw South Africa, uh, Black middle class exploding. Um, and alongside that, there was resentment among a section of white society that this is some form of reverse discrimination. So massive debate, tensions in what I like to refer to as an elite conflict between the newly empowered and the historically privileged. And this continued way into the administration of the third administration, which will be the, the administration of Jacob Zuma. But the, tension, the tone really of the tension and conflict changed simply as a result of the kleptocracy that set in with Zuma. He was unashamed, you know, he was clear that he was going to use the state for self-enrichment and to benefit those who were close to him. So this is a phase that is referred in South Africa today as state capture, which is a capture of state procurement, really, by those who are connected to political power with the sole purpose of becoming extremely rich. But this has had major consequences on the functioning of the state and the management of the economy. So instead of a government working to reverse the legacy of apartheid through special redesign or implementing rent reform, investing in good quality education, we have had a ruling party that has focused over the past few years or so on itself and those close to it and has abandoned its long-term mission to reverse the legacy of apartheid. So that is where we are now in South Africa. And I think the next 30 years is going to be about how to deal with the legacy of apartheid and reversing the damage done by the misrule of the ANC over the past 10, 15 years. And I do believe that South Africa has the ability to self-correct. And I think we are at the beginning of that. Um, this little bit of that is, is, is beginning to, to, to take form. So yes, um, the legacy of apartheid, um, the misrule of the ANC is what would define what has happened over the past 15 years. Thank you, Palesa. That was, I mean, I think you really just gave us a sense of the enormity of the of the challenge and sort of how how things have progressed over time. And um, and, and that was incredibly helpful. So thank you very much. Evan, turning to you, um, the economic growth has stalled or not taken off for many citizens. So what role does the remnants of apartheid and then, then the need for land reform being one of them play into this stalling of the economic growth? Uh, great. If this panel had been, you know, has South Africa's democracy failed to produce steady economic growth? That would be an easy question because the answer to that would be yes, it has failed, right? Um, and, you know, for, for over a decade following the 94 election, you know, growth was was pretty solid in South Africa. But 2008 happened. Global economic meltdown. You know, if you look at economic growth, you know, in lots of countries, boom, you know, South Africa fell, you know, around the world. Happens to be, you know, 2009 is when Zuma, you know, South Africa, I think we can all agree, the country's worst president comes into office. And, you know, other other places, you know, rebounded a little bit better. But, but South Africa really never got its footing economically after that. And, you know, there's enormous creativity and talent and some terrific infrastructure in the country. 
Um, and, and I don't think one has to be all doom and gloom, but if you compound where things were after 2009 and now, and now COVID economic pictures been pretty, pretty bleak. And we put into perspective, you know, again, in terms of hopes and expectations is during the years of transition, there was this hope, maybe there's going to be a post-apartheid dividend is the, is the term people used. Yeah. The idea was cool, it's, it's apartheid thing, right? Which means separateness and it's a way of creating segregation is wasteful. You have all these separate bureaucracies to administer people of different races differently. And you have a government that rather than building human capital is, you know, designed to keep down human capital for the majority of the population. So if you just stop all that nonsense, plus you eliminate sanctions and allow South Africa to participate in the global economy, you're going to have this big fat dividend. You're going to have all this economic growth. And again, you had some of that in the first in first few years, but now what are we finding? Well, you know, many, many more people, you know, Black people are getting educated at much higher levels than they did previously. Quality of education is not, you know, particularly good for, for most of those folks. Um, there, there's a lack of entrepreneurial tradition and activity. There's a lot of mistrust in society. Millions of people suffer from poor health. The government's overly reliant on a coal economy and the mining industry is clearly in decline. So you have all these things that are that are a mix of the apartheid legacy and just you know some 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 bad luck um, that that I think are hampering South Africa and and a land reform issue is a big one right you you have you know I can't remember the numbers but white South Africans comprise less than ten percent of the population and they overwhelmingly own you know the vast you know majority of commercial land um, and 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 residential property. And and this this bedevils South Africa in ways that's bedeviled you know previously other previously colonized countries and and in my book I, I I focus on one municipality in South Africa and look at at their path of transition it's it's the municipality of Mahali City which is kind of on the urban periphery next to Johannesburg and it's funny I, you know I I tell a story about a, a housing effort a political effort that, that I describe as a success story. Um, because I think it is. But what happened was, you know, one political organizer, a guy who was uh, actually a barber, a hairdresser, organized you know, dozens and dozens of families and said, let's chip in, let's try and buy some land so we can form a community together. And, um, and we'll, we'll get the government to provide these houses for us if we purchase the land. And so people chipped in and they organized. It's kind of like, what you dream of in terms of community development. But every time they tried to purchase land, various white landowners would get in the way. They would bid up the price. They would you know, interfere. This is after 1994 um, because it was like an extreme case of nimbyism, right? Not in my backyard. I don't want to have all these, you know, relatively poor black people living in their houses next to my big white farm. And it took them two decades of mobilizing, going through courts, going through various bureaucratic processes to finally get um, this land, get the government to build the houses. And they formed, you know, it's a success story in the sense that it's an incredible community compared to a lot of housing project communities, which are actually kind of depressing. They don't work 
so well in practice. This one forged through struggle and community coordination. Um, you know, people have really high levels of social capital. They trust each other. They're in jobs, and 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 that's exciting. But boy, they had to work so hard to get to this point, and they shouldn't have had to, right? And it's it's reflective of the larger problems in the country that they just haven't figured out this land question. And it's a tough one, right? Because you know, when it comes to let's say agricultural land, you know. Just saying, all right, well, we're going to take this land from this, you know, pretty successful commercial white farmer and we're going to, you know, slice it up and give it to lots of, you know, would be black farmers. It, that solution doesn't always work so, so well, given again the history um, of where human capital is um, in, in South Africa. But in terms of fairness, it's just an unfair situation um, and, and, and something really needs to be done about it. So why don't I pause there? Perfect. Palesa, I'd love to get your thought. You're calling it from Washington, D.C. Um, you know, what, what is your take on where U.S. policy is going with South Africa and how U.S. relations with South Africa um, have been evolving over the years? Um, where do you see Washington's priorities standing, um, both economically and, and politically? What, what, what's your take? Yeah, <laughs> that's such an interest. It's always an interesting question, the US-South um, Africa relations. You know, I mean, I think like on people to people, um, the relations between South Africa and the United States is generally good. Uh, the US has educated a number of South Africans uh, who hold very, you know, important positions in business, government, other sectors of, 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 of influence in South Africa. So many people have been educated in some of the, uh, you know, top universities in the United States. Um, and the U.S. remains one of South Africa's major trading partners. Uh, you know, some of South Africa's top athletes train in the U.S. Major collaboration on health and on scientific research. Uh, even South Africa's number one comedian is on U.S. television every night. Um, so from people to people, I think the relations between the U.S. and South Africa are quite solid. I think the problem is in the political management of the relationship. You know, and I think part of it has got to do with the history. Um, you know, the generation that leads South Africa right now still remembers who was on their side when they were still fighting apartheid. Um, and, 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 and there is that history that the U.S. government was not an ally in that fight. And that history and memory is deep. So I think for some time and for a long, for as long as this generation of political leadership in South Africa remains in charge, South Africa will always have a very uh, sort of keep the U.S. in the friend zone, so to say, to use that metaphor, not get quite close, but keep it on the on 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 the friend zone. And the irony for me is that I think many of the officials working on South Africa or Africa. Um, in the U.S. administration, many of them cut their political teeth, so to say, in the apartheid, uh, anti-apartheid movement in the U.S., but now find that their relationship with the political leadership in the United States is not as friendly as it used to be back then. So that is kind of the irony. I think it's going to be like that for, 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 for some time. But on foreign policy-wise, on the economic front, Congress has renewed their goal until 2025. Um, this grants, obviously, significant market access advantages to South Africa and other countries. 
um, but also in recent years, a number of US industries have seen this as granting unwelcome competition. So there's always going to be greater pressure to amend it in favor of American firms if it gets amended at all. Um, in South Africa's economy is large and there's substantial US obviously investments there, but um, this, you know, uncertainty over power supply casts a shadow over South Africa. Um, and also, South Africa is not the only game in town anymore. Washington has reached bilateral agreements with Kenya, has strong relations with Rwanda and, 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 and Nigeria. In short, South Africa, despite its importance, is among um, many. But on the political side, um, obviously, the U.S. has welcomed the the uh, administration of, of, of Ramaphosa, but this has not been a hugely strong relationship. I mean, you know, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa still has to visit the United States, hasn't done that, and he's been in power since 2018. Um, the recently appointed U.S. Ambassador to South Africa, Ruben Brigitte, uh, recently called South Africa's position on Russia's invasion of Ukraine disappointing which does reflect a broader view of South Africa within U.S. policy circles. So it's going to be a very interesting um, thing to watch over the next few years, how this relationship unfolds. Thank you very much. Evan, turning to you, what are some of the strengths of the society that will likely be consequential for South Africa over the upcoming decade? Um, and, and actually, I rather than turning to one person, I'd, I'd love to get each of your takes on this just sort of as a, as a quick lightning round before I get to some of the next questions, because I think, I think it'd be great to have all of your viewpoints. And Evan, I'd love to start with you. Sure. I mean, you know, South Africa is, is a remarkably vibrant society. You know, you go there and I mean, the, the, the energy level about, you know, with respect to, to transformation and the you know, willingness to participate and to engage and, you know, to have diverse points of view and to be extraordinarily creative, um, I think is all there. It, you know, and again, it's, it's as, as, as we've had, had in all these discussions, you know, kind of compared to what? Um, and compared to, you know, most of the rest of Africa, there's some really amazing infrastructure in South Africa. Um, you know, there are some great roads, there are great airports, there are, you know, leading uh, academic institutions. There's a, there is a lot of building blocks combined with this you know, group of people who feel very strongly about wanting to rebuild their society um, and, 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 and still have that kind of energy on the, on, on the edge of their seats. And that's you know, maybe somewhat you know, uh, intangible. And if my social science friends asked me to measure that, I would uh, not be able to do it. But, but I think that that's, you know, that, that, that there are those important features. And also an amazing uh, um, network of journalists, you know, who really, if we think that, that, that the truth will set us free, boy, you know, the South Africans do a great job of letting us know what is going on. Sometimes, I think, I think sometimes the tenor can be so critical, so negative. Um, you know, each day my inbox is filled with kind of snark from South African journalists that, you know, if you're an ordinary citizen, you can't help but get down. And, and I feel like my role in, in all this as an, as an informed outsider is to say, hey, you know, you guys actually are doing, you know, amazingly well. You know, if you look at the United States, boy, are we, you know, making a mess of, of, of our legacy. You guys maybe could do better than we're doing right now. Great. Thank you. Halesa. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for me, uh, the strength of South Africa is in the sense of freedom. Um, and I, and you can 
overestimate and underestimate that that sense of being free you can say whatever you want anytime anywhere to anyone without fear that the government will come after you and this is important um you know it's not many countries have that <laughs> sense of freedom um, in the United States, we can take it for granted, but this is not the reality uh, for many people around the world. So that sense of being free, we, have, we are very free. We have a very brave and free press. We have credible elections and a peaceful transfer of power is a very well-established principle. Um, so is democracy a remedy? Yes, it is. Um, is this freedom that sees ordinary people take to the streets and demand accountability from people in power. It is this freedom to choose that has seen the ANC get punished in local government elections and is most likely going to be punished in the next national elections in two years time. So at the level of freedom, I think South Africa's strength is its democracy. Um, but has that translated in improved quality of life for the vast majority? And the answer has got to be no. And but I, I also think that it's 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 not an either or question um, because I believe that freedom and democracy is ultimately about improving the quality of life of all the people, and I think that is primarily what the tension and the struggle and the fight today is about. But you need that freedom to be able to fight for your rights, and that is the strength of South Africa. Thank you, Palesa, and and in a great place to end. Um, Thank you. Thank you all. This was a really a fascinating discussion. Thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you, ICWA, for being a great partner. Thank you very much. Bye thank now. We can't thank you enough for being a part of this episode of Global Insights. To dive deeper into the world of insightful analysis and to learn more about how you can join our community, visit us at network2020.org. You can learn more about our partner for this discussion, the Institute of Current World Affairs, at icwa.org.